Today, I have Dr. Martin Seif, who is a clinical psychologist, also anxiety treatment specialist, and author of some really great books, Overcoming Unwanted Intrusive Thoughts, Needing to Know for Sure, and several others. So you know that I will always talk about my experiences, what I've tried, what worked for me, what didn't work for me. But I'm not a licensed professional, so I also bring on guests like Dr. Martin C. to talk about these things since they specialize in them. So I always recommend, you know, try one thing, see how you do with that. If it doesn't work, try something else. So today, Dr. Seif is going to talk about intrusive thoughts and what we can do about anxiety. So let's dive in. Welcome to Top Self, the podcast dedicated to relax your mind, achieve change, and become a healthier, more present you. Are you ready to move past the daily anxiety, comparing and doubting yourself, and feeling like you're not enough? I'm your host, Shannon Bryant, and I've ruined many good relationships because of my jealousy and stayed way too long in some bad ones because of my insecurity but I stopped letting fear drive my actions. And now I can't wait to share with you as I dive into these emotions, shed light on how they might be impacting your life and uncover strategies to break free from their grip. It's time to start living a life of confidence. So get ready to ignite your self-worth and transform your life because my friend, you are worthy. We talk a lot on this podcast about intrusive thoughts. I certainly experienced it myself when I was in the throes of deep, extreme jealousy. So to talk about this in a little bit more detail, because I know this is something that you suffer with quite a bit, I have with me Dr. Martin Seif has a couple of books too, Needing to Know for Sure and then Overcoming Unwanted Intrusive Thoughts. I know that you are a master clinician, have spent, what, more than 35 years developing treatment methods for anxiety disorders. Um, also the founder of Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Welcome, Dr. C. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, I also know you specialize in helping people like the fear of flying and bridge phobia, all of that, which both of those I can certainly understand. But I want to talk to you about intrusive thoughts. And if we could just start with what are intrusive thoughts? How would you describe those? Okay. Well, um, I want to make a distinction between passing intrusive thoughts and unwanted intrusive thoughts. So everybody has a kind of a flow of conversations that goes through their head. And sometimes we get these thoughts that seem strange or silly or where the heck did that come from in some way? Most of the time, we forget about them, quite honestly, um, unless they're funny or particularly creative and we think about it in some way. So those are intrusive thoughts that everyone has. I'll give you an example of intrusive thought. I live in the Manhattan area. We have subways. You're on a subway platform. You think, you know, I could push that person over the subway. And you, you say, well, right. no, you know, you don't take it that seriously. Oh, God, I can't believe I think that. Just thoughts that like, kind of strike you as odd. Sometimes the thoughts are naughty. Sometimes they're funny. Anyway, those are passing intrusive thoughts. 
We're going to not talk about that because we also have unwanted intrusive thoughts. These are thoughts that somehow get stuck in our head and they're upsetting. They're distressing. We want to get rid of them. Okay. We think to ourselves, for example, wait a second. Do I really care about this person? Do I not care about this person? Does this person really care about me? Do I not care about me? And these thoughts don't go away. They continue and they reverberate and they loop around and around in our head. That's an unwanted intrusive thoughts. And the problem with unwanted intrusive thoughts is that the content of them always are very disturbing. And there's a reason for that because we get stuck on thoughts that we don't particularly want to have in some way. So when we have a thought, I know that you deal a lot with relationships. You deal a lot with people who are struggling in relationships or maybe struggling with their feelings or emotions or thoughts in relationships. And they might have a thought that they don't want to have. Do I really care about this person? Does this person really care about me? Even though there's virtually no evidence to back that up. And so we're not talking about someone who's completely ignoring someone. We have a thought. We don't like having that thought. So we try to push it away. And the problem with that, as soon as we try to push a thought away, the thought comes back and gets stuck. And I can, you know, I, I say to you, listen, for the next five minutes, you get any thought you want. Don't think about pink elephants. Okay. <laughs> Just don't think about pink elephants for the next five minutes. You get, there are millions of thoughts. My, the probability is that you're not going to succeed in not thinking about pink elephants. And here's this. The harder you try, the less successful you're going to be. So if I say to you, bear with me, I have a little machine that can actually read your mind. And if you think about pink elephants, I'm going to hurt you and every person that you really care about. If that were true, there's zero chance that you're not thinking about pink elephants. So the problem is when we're dealing with anxiety, often effort works backwards. And when people get a thought that they find disturbing, they try not to have it, and then it comes back more. That's a stuck thought. That's an unwanted intrusive thought. Long answer to a short question. No, that's that's great. Thank you so much for explaining the difference, too, because I think we have all had those. I know I've certainly had conversations with my husband like, don't think I'm a, don't think I'm weird. I don't know why I thought that. Yeah. Um, and so I think we all have those. And then sometimes we feel really guilty because we had them or like, what's wrong with me that I was thinking well, in that here's way. The here's the point. My sense is, and I can get into it, that there's no reason to feel guilty for having a thought. And here's the reason why. Because thoughts, a lot of our thoughts are under our control. And believe it or not, a lot of our thoughts aren't under our control. And there are times that we really like that. For example, when we're being creative, we can't sit around and say, wait a second, I think I'll have a creative thought right now. You don't do that. It pops into your mind. If you're trying to write something, if you're a poet, if you're an artist, these creative thoughts just come out in spite of us. So there's a part of our brain that's and a part of our thinking that's in our control and a part that's not in our control. We have to understand that. I tell patients often, your brain is not as smart as you think it is. Or another way of yeah, there's an old saying, the mind is a great servant, but a poor master. So you have to understand their limitations to what our mind can do and how much control we have. Well, so we have those. We know those. Those are the ones that probably 
someone listening into this podcast not really worried about where it does get hard for us or disruptive in our lives are the unwanted that you talked about, where um, especially for the someone listening to this podcast, and I certainly did it myself, kind of making up a story that we're thinking and having these thoughts of, oh my gosh, my my husband has somebody new that he works with. And oh my gosh, they're probably talking every day. They're probably getting close. They're probably at lunch. They're probably having dinners. And then it just continues to go and go and go where we don't have any evidence of that. But it is something that that we do often. And then you have that anxiety as if it's real. Have fear and lack of confidence taken over your life? Is your constant anxiety keeping you distracted, holding you back from a successful career, a healthy relationship free of jealousy, or living the life you know you were meant to have? If you're ready to relax your mind, achieve change, and be a healthier, more present you, then book your free 30-minute discovery call today to see how I can help. I let my feelings of low self-worth get in the way for far too long, but I discovered a path to a calmer mind, learned how to be confident in my relationship, allowing me to feel present again in my own life. If you're looking to take your relationship or your career to the next level, or you just want to accelerate your journey to your top self, the link to book your free discovery call is in the show notes. Now back to the show. What you're describing is a creative imagination. And all of us should appreciate the fact that we we are creative and our imagination is creative. But there are times that we get um, embedded in our imagination, okay? And, and, and lose track with the basic realities that we're paying attention to. So, for example, um, there's a big difference between being married to someone who comes home with lipstick on their collar and, you know, uh, late at night and drunk and claims that they were working late or something, because at that point, there's some evidence to say, wait Mm -hmm. a second, what's going on? At at the very least, to kind of wonder what's going on. So there's real life. What you're describing, though, is something which a person becomes absorbed in their imagination based on virtually no evidence at all, except for the fact that they're working with someone in some way. And and a person like that can really get involved and start to believe their imagination more than their perceived facts. And that's the sort of situation that creates a lot of anxiety. What happens then is a person then begins to look for reassurance. Okay, so what they do, they get very anxious about it. They might check their cell phone. They might check the emails. They might check, they might call people around. And what they're trying to do is to relieve their anxiety about what if something problematic is happening with my spouse or my lover or my husband or or my wife or whatever in some way. The problem is that reassurance like that in the long run just reinforces the need for more reassurance. Think of reassurance as a form of a drug. And the more you take it, you take a drug, you feel good for a while, and then the drug wears off and you need it again. And I bet 
Anyone who's gone through a reassurance thing, either checking the phone, feeling terrible, checking their text messages, going through all these things, they feel relieved for a minute yeah. or, for a, or for a day or for a short period of time. And then doubts start to come. Yeah, did I check it? Is it possible? There's another phone. Is this going on in some way? They get more anxious about it and they need to check again. So there's this constant sort of anxiety over what if something bad is happening based on their imagination, a need for reassurance, get reassurance, you feel better. That's a little bit like your hit, your drug hit in a certain way. You feel chilled for a while and then you get a rebound effect. And so it continues a cycle of anxiety, reassurance, anxiety, reassurance with your imagination playing a big role is that yeah. not familiar? Absolutely. Um, and Martin, so this podcast used to be called Jealousy Junkie for that very reason. Well, interesting. We because the book that you had mentioned, we're, we called it Needing to Know for Sure, but we used to, we wanted to call it initially the Reassurance Junkie. Okay, uh, but, yeah. but the editor didn't like that concept in some way, so we had to change it. But people become reassurance junkies, and not only that, they. They get really concerned about it and say they're, they're, they, they ask their spouse for reassurance and it's, it becomes such a bother that their spouse actually starts to move away from them in some way. And that makes them even more anxious because they say, oh my God, the person really does, the person really is moving away from it. And they're not aware that it's the constant request for reassurance that's actually instigating that behavior, all started by being absorbed in their imagination of the story that you just like the story mm-hmm. that you create. Yeah. So where would you like that person that is doing those sorts of things? It really is starting to affect their daily life. Um, and I certainly struggled with this. I mean, I had constant anxiety. My stomach hurt all the time. I felt like I was on edge. I was super busy. I always say, man, if I could have gotten paid for all the time that I was seeking reassurance um i i would i would be very well off right now but uh so someone who is doing that how would you classify that um because i think there's some people seem to have different um opinions about it but would you classify that as a form of mental illness ocd just anxiety well, where do you feel like that falls well look I'm an anxiety disorder specialist, so I never use the word anxiety. It's like an, it's like an Inuit. They don't actually, they don't have a word for snow. They, they, they have 11 different words. Snow is a general term that we, they have a term Mm. for dry snow and wet snow and heavy snow and light snow and driving snow or whatever. So to me, anxiety is too big a characteristic, but it's too big a classification. But I would say certainly. It's an uncomfortable feeling for a lot of people. I think one of the things that goes on for whatever reason, people often who have this issue often have what I'm going to call a sticky mind. And a sticky mind is are people who tend to loop about things in their mind, think about it a lot. You know, there's some people that goes in one out the other. You're not that. So you tend to think of things and you tend to ruminate, you tend to loop around. And those thoughts have the capacity to drive up your anxiety, especially when the thoughts start to go into the catastrophic direction. Yeah. You know, it's what if, 
You know, it's not mm-hmm. what if this great thing happens. It's what if this is a problem? What if we can't work this out? What if I mess up this? And it's, by the way, these what if thoughts are not just about one's spouse. You also can start to loop in your mind about, do I care enough about him or her? Is this the right person for me? And Am I being unfaithful if I look at someone at work? Am I? I mean, so the concept of are my motives pure enough? Is his motives, are her motives pure enough? These are all the substance of loopiness. Now, I don't think it adds too much to add a diagnosis, but certainly there are some people who have what's called generalized anxiety disorder, which is just a fancy term for worry disorder. And a worry disorder is where you're always wetting and, you know, and worried about it and sort of answering it. In some cases where it becomes very explicit, it can, it can sort of loop on, onto obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. People used to think that obsessive compulsive disorder was obsessions were thoughts and compulsions were like behaviors where you're washing your hands or checking something. Yeah. People now know that most OCD is entirely in your head. So any back and forth that goes on can meet the criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. Technically, both OCD and GAD, obsessive compulsive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder are considered to be anxiety disorders. So that gives the answer to it in some way. However, a lot of it is situational and depends on the particular life that you live in the partner that you have. Are most of the people who watch your podcast or are involved with your podcast, are they people who are in a relationship or moving into a relationship or out or moving out of a relationship or yeah like most of them are in a serious relationship and 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 so what I hear and what I experienced myself was you know, kind of in the beginning of the relationship, I was the coolest girlfriend. Like I was the coolest one you wanted to have until I started to have feelings for someone. Right. Then all of the jealousy would start. Because the thought, what if, really creates a fear, okay, that I could be hurt, whatever reason. I mean, there's that, mm-hmm. you don't have to explain if you're, if you're, if you have feelings for someone, you don't have to explain the idea that if something went wrong, you would feel hurt. That's obvious about that. And so like, the real question is, how do you cope with that idea? Do you cope with it by, by either asking for reassurance from someone else, or do you learn to cope with it by saying, wait a second, this, this involves my own insecurity and my own anxiety, and I have to learn to sit with it and become more able to cope with the difficulty or the discomfort of the uncertainty. And also to make a distinction between what's a realistic uncertainty and what is an unrealistic uncertainty. I'll I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Lots of people don't realize that we have lots of different emotions about the same thing at the same time. And that's part of being alive and part of being a human being. I tell my patients, listen, if we didn't have lots of different feelings about the same time, Things would be so simple. We'd say, I feel this way about this. I feel this way about this. I feel this way about this. And I'd be on a job. There would be no need for their train. And you podcast would fold also. That's not the way it is. We have a complex of emotions and we have to kind of sort them out in some way. And the question is, we need to sort them out by teaching ourselves 
to somehow cope with the discomfort of uncertainty rather than relying on someone else to reassure us. Yeah, I love that discomfort of uncertainty. Um, and I always, I refer to it a lot as like sit in the suck, <laughs> like you were talking about what earlier. Kind of sit in my, what'd you say? Sit in the? Sit in the suck? Yeah. <laughs> like the, yeah, that's the right. I hate it. I'm uncomfortable. But just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean that there's something to do about that always. Actually, because, and so we, we just to say, what you want to do is surrender the struggle against uncertainty. But patients hated that because they would say, oh, we should just give up. Is that it? And they say, so we thought up the term therapeutic surrender. That's, that sounds a little more sophisticated. It's really the notion that, that if you look, when you're dealing with anxiety, remember I said initially that effort works backwards. The harder you try not to have a thought, the worse right. it is. Anxiety has what's called paradoxical effort, which is really people have to, understand that it's it's a difficult concept in general the more effort we put towards something the greater the chance of success either in achieving something at work or even moving something if you want to move you have to put effort into it in order to do something in anxiety it works entirely opposite so somehow people have to learn not to put effort into it they have to learn to leave it alone and it's true when we're dealing with anxiety, it's, it's a true example of less is more. Okay. So once you understand that this is your anxiety, what you want to do is less. Okay. Mm. And that's the concept of therapeutic surrender. It's hard for us because a lot of us are type A people. You know, we kind of figure we're going to do something about that. Right. Well, so part of, I think, that really struggle, especially for um, those who are jealous in relationships, and I can even give an example, and there, I did a podcast mm. episode about it. My husband and I went to Costa Rica this past January, and I have done a lot of work getting over my jealousy. I'm, we have a completely different relationship, but it still creeps in there from time to time, especially in Costa Rica on the beach. I know. I've been here right? many times. I know what it's like. Oh, yeah, exactly. So um, there was an uncomfortable moment and I kind of lost it a little bit. But what, you know, I was able to recover well, pretty what, quickly. Can I ask you, what do you mean by when you say you lost it? What, what did so you do? here's what happens a lot. And I have a ton of conversations um, with people that this is the scenario. So they get jealous. They're in this situation. Let's just use my example. We're on sure. the beach. Um, there is the woman in front of us, you know, butt cheeks out the whole, you know, bikini type thing. And I became really jealous. And a lot of times what happens is this, this almost uncontrollable where we get to the point, we say pretty nasty things. When you, can I ask you, when you say you got really jealous, what are you jealous that he was looking at her or that she was what, when you like, yeah, so I would say. I'm sorry. Is that all right that I ask you this question? Oh, so I love it. When you say you, you, when you say you're not jealous, what, what what were you first aware of in some way? You know, like you saw it this, is, you saw this woman who was, and everything is a lot of things are hanging out. And then what <laughs> happened then? Yeah. So where what it happens, and we know that um, it is it is not necessarily rational 
But it's the thought of, oh my gosh, he's looking at her. He finds her attractive. He finds her more attractive. I feel embarrassed. I feel, um, you know, the, the comparison piece. And then it's like, we don't, we get really jealous and don't want to be in that situation. I don't want him to even see her um, because it makes me feel a certain way about myself. So then it's almost like this temper tantrum reaction where like, I'm going to get angry with him. You know, I'm angry with him. And then there's usually an argument, you know? So, so, so my sense would be the goal that you have, we want changes in attitude and changes in perspective. And so I would say the first thing is to help you. I mean, if you, you're not a my patient, but if I, a patient like you, I would help them to try to change their perspective. And what that means is to take a more mindful metacognitive perspective to be able to say, wait a second, my imagination is popping up right now and it's making me think that he finds her more attractive. And the fact is, who knows? That's what's driving my anxiety right now. And I and to say, wait a second, that's my imagination. So let me just observe that in some way. That's the first thing. That's the change in perspective rather than, which is to be able to kind of sort of float above yourself a little and to watch your imagination start pumping you up, even without changing. Now, the change in attitude is that we have a kind of a built-in desire to avoid feeling anxious. And so we explode in some way. Better to get into a fight than to, yeah. to be anxious. So the change in an attitude is to say, I'm going to lean into my anxiety. I'm going to let it be. Wait a second. I'm having this imagination. It's making me anxious. I'm going to just let it be. I'm going to let, I'm going to see what happens with the anxiety. And here's the thing. If you don't fight it, it tends to go away much faster than if you fight it. And so it's truly the notion where the less that you do with it, the more it is. It's the way that we say it, the way that my profession would say it is that it's the attempts to avoid anxiety that keep it going. What would be some examples of avoiding it? Having a fight would be avoiding it. Let's go. Let's leave. Um, putting her down. These are all ways. Or to, to tell you, oh, I don't care about that. Who cares about I mean, basically, in, in any, or, to, or to change the subject or to throw sand in his face or throw sand in her face. I mean, anything to do. That somehow gets you, all these things are avoidances of anxiety in some way. And what, we're, what we'd like you to do is just leave it alone because your, our body react, our body feels better much faster when we leave it alone. It's a way. Think of anxiety as a wave that kind of comes. Oh my God, I can't stand it. I can't. Okay. And then you kind of, the wave passes. And at some point you start to say, Okay, whenever, you know, sorry, just a thought. That's right. I can handle it. It's okay that I feel uncomfortable. Yes. And the discomfort tends to go away if you leave it alone in some way. Yeah. Um, it's all, it's certainly all right to feel uncomfortable. I would just phrase it that way, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and the discomfort can, there's a, this whole theories about how our brain works, but the concept is that if you allow yourself, if you expose yourself to it and let your, and let it go away on its own, then your brain actually creates neural structures 
which which makes the uh, jealousy, in this case, the jealous anxiety, less intense. You know, because mm-hmm. when you imagine doing something in the future, that's going to be difficult for you. We yeah. look at the avoidance, that is the avoidance nature of anxiety. We do have lists of do's and don'ts, but really, I think the general concept is we're trying to get people to communicate in a way that essentially doesn't implicitly ask for reassurance, but asks for factual information in some way. Mm. And that's, that's having to do with needing to know for sure. Um, you know, we've written a bunch of books, do's and don'ts. I, I, I think that we try to avoid don'ts, try <laughs> to avoid don'ts, because whenever, if we're saying, we want you to allow yourself to experience this, whatever you're mm-hmm. going through. And whenever we say don't, then it suggests that people are going to try to avoid it in some way. So right. It's truly less is more. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the pink elephant. If I say don't do this, <laughs> you're probably yeah, going to do it, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This you're was welcome. very Pleasure. helpful. Um, and I am going to link to all of your books in the show notes. We'll yeah. And there. link to, um, there's an organization called the, Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Um, many, many years ago, I was one of the five or six or seven founders. It's a big organization, helps people with anxiety and uh, depression, and it has a lot of resources on it. Great. It's a great website. That'll do it for another episode of Top Self. Until next time, take care and remember you're not alone. <laughs>